Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Maeve McLennigan, and this is The Tip-Off, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of some of the UK's best investigative journalism. Today's story is a relay race. In reality, it involved more than 300 reporters across six continents. But we're going to focus on just three journalists. My name is Bastian Obermeyer, and I'm the deputy head of the investigative department of Süddeutsche Zeitung. We start with Bastian. He works for the German paper Süddeutsche Zeitung. And in the past, he's written about illicit arms deals, sexual abuse by priests and Nazi war criminals. But in early 2015, he was about to start down another path, one that would lead to the biggest story of his career. And it started with just eight words on a screen. Hello, this is John Doe. Interested in data? Well, in the first moment, I um, was a little curious and uh, and interested. That was a message Bastian received one day. A message from an anonymous source. It was quickly followed by more. My life is in danger. We will only chat over encrypted files. No meeting ever. Intrigued. Bastian started to message the source regularly. I agreed to receive uh, more documents. In the next messages that I received from the source, I I uh, also got some um, some more and, uh, and more documents later. Then, you know, after some days um, when I received more and more and more i i understood that this this could be a really good story the files he received were a jumble of things emails legal documents newspaper clippings but they were all coming from one law firm a company called mossack fonseca realizing this was far too big a project for just him and his fellow colleagues he turned to the icij the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Bastian had worked with them on stories about big leaks before. But it was not not clear to any of us how big this could humanly possibly become. So, um, but I was still 
a little careful. I wasn't sure if they would do the story because we did a lot of tax projects before uh, and, you know, hidden money in offshore centers or whatever. So I wasn't sure if they would do the story at all. Head of the ICIJ, Gerald Ryle, flew to Germany to meet Bastian. But at this point, all they had was about 100 gigabytes of data. Now, that was a tiny drop in the ocean compared to the 2.6 terabytes they'd end up with at the end. And at first, the ICIJ weren't exactly jumping out of their seats with excitement. As often happens with the very early days of these leak projects, you're never entirely sure of what you have. Let's leave Bastian in Munich and move more than 4,200 miles west to Washington, D.C., here we find Will Fitzgibbon, a reporter at the ICIJ. Will had worked on big leak stories before, and he knew that a load of paperwork didn't necessarily mean there's a great story there. So the response to Bastian's data was fairly muted, cautious. That was until one day when Will was interrupted from his work by a whoop of delight. Cry of enthusiasm came out of the office. His boss had been sifting through some of those files. I think that was when he first had stumbled across the passport of a family member related to the president of Syria. The thinking there being that if this is a law firm and an offshore industry in which members of the Syrian presidential family are using their services, then there's a high chance that there are going to be other interesting characters in there as well. Bastian remembers a similar moment when the name and the data made him realise they were onto something too. When I saw the best friend of Vladimir Putin in the data, uh, when I googled his name and found out that this guy that is in connection to several offshore companies and millions of dollars, when I saw that this guy is the best friend of Vladimir Putin, I realised this is, this is going to be a big story. So this big jumble of paperwork, it looked like it could actually lead to something, something big. Excited, the network launched into gear. But we've dallied here too long. Time to hop back across the Atlantic. Now we're heading for the offices of The Guardian newspaper, just north of King's Cross in London. Holly Watt had only joined The Guardian a few months earlier. She'd been busy learning everyone's names, settling in, when one day, a colleague pulled her aside and mentioned a company she'd never heard of. It was actually quite awkward the first time I heard about it because um, some one of my colleagues came to me and sort of took me off to a quiet room to have a word about it and started talking about this company called Mossack Fonseca. And I don't think I was particularly unusual in the world at that point to have literally never heard of them. Um, so I sort of nodded my way through it and I kind of like, yes, no, of course, of course. Uh, and I really had no idea what they were talking about. The Guardian had secured a place in the ICIJ's network, and they'd just heard about this new dump of data. So Holly was pulled into a small team, and they were squirrelled away into a side office. The same office, in fact, where journalists had dug into the leaks from Edward Snowden just a few years earlier. We were we were working out of a room which actually is just it looks out over the canal in King's Cross, which which is lovely actually, and um, uh, you know it's a beautiful view actually. Okay, so at this point, the network is engaged, everyone is excited, and new data was being leaked to Bastian all the time. But how do you share such a huge quantity of data with so many people around the world? 
Well, thankfully, the ICIJ had worked on huge projects before, and so they had the technology. It's, I think, important to remember that the Panama Papers didn't come out of nowhere. ICIJ and our partners, including The Guardian and Süddeutsche Zeitung, have been doing leak-based offshore projects for a number of years, since 2013. So because of that, the ICIJ data team had already built up certain technological infrastructure. One piece of software was called the iHub, a kind of Facebook for journalists, where reporters from all across the network could chat and share their findings. Another key programme was a system called Blacklight. That was a depository for all that data that Bastian had been given. That allows you to pretty much use it as a Google search and search keywords from within those files. So in the case of Panama Papers, the 11.5 million documents actually came to us over the course of months. And each time they arrived, the ICIJ data team would take them, upload them onto a server and make those available through this Blacklight program, which is a secure web address, passwords and logins of which we share with our partners around the world which means that at any given time, you'll have a journalist in New Zealand, Pakistan, Senegal and Chile all tapping away to see what kind of findings relevant to their own country they can find. Holly was one of those journalists tapping away. She was given secure login details and was ready to start. But she faced a problem. Where to begin? With a world of data and possible angles, she decided to start by running some high-profile names through the system. And there were lists to guide her. For example, the Sunday Times Rich List, or a list of MPs' names, or a list of the House of Lords, and endless lists, or like the OFAC Treasury, you know, the list of people that you're not allowed to do business with. Sure enough, she started to find interesting documents. That was kind of, it sort of meant that a lot of low-hanging fruit got got caught very, very quickly, got picked very quickly. But So that meant that you started with actually quite a lot of information quite fast. Holly carried on, entering name after name into the Blacklight search system. And then up would ping this information. So within the Blacklight system, which did, I can't, it was just almost like a plain screen, um, you would search that and then it would come up and it would be broken down into year that the document had been created. And some of these documents had been created, you know, 40 years ago. Um, So you had that. And then within that, you could sort of search by company or you could search by remember even you could you know it was quite it was quite well done and then holly and her colleagues could chase up leads using that network around the world we'd sort of put in you could say like really simple things like oh could somebody get me this german company's house document or could somebody even really basic stuff like could somebody go and see if this address exists you know uh so stuff like that that would have taken us months to do from london but we could do it really fast through that system this high-tech system was a fantastic resource but it wasn't the only tool Holly and her colleagues used. Well, so we had this high-tech system, which was the intelligence hub, the iHub, um, and that was, you know, putting everything in and every photo. And we also had our low-tech version, which was, you know, literally just post-it notes on the wall. I mean, because it was quite a big room that we were operating out of, and we had, I mean, yeah, there were quite a lot of post-it notes. Several, I'd say several hundred post-it notes that you'd look at slightly kind of like, we will never reach the end, ever. <laughs> We've run out of post-its. <laughs> The team got to work, inputting name after name into the database. But sometimes what looked like great hits didn't always turn out that way. 
my real memory of the Panama Papers is actually how many unbelievably vast number of false positives there were over the course of the investigation. Because you'd put in, let's say, David Cameron. And because this system was had made everything searchable, that meant that if there was a cutting in there from the Guardian, let's say, it would go like, oh, yeah, the words David Cameron are in here. So you'd get excited temporarily, click on it and realise it was a really, you know, it was something completely irrelevant. So over the course of several months, you, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of totally false positives and things like that, moments of hope that would then be crushed. So I just want to pause here to explain just how an important resource this is. You see, when you're looking into companies' financial practices, you can usually pull out company accounts and other financial documents from national company registers. In the UK, there's one called Companies House. Delving into those, you can build up a good picture of the complex webs of companies that some businesses use. And sometimes you can follow money as it flows from one agency to another. But the trail runs cold if a company is set up in a tax jurisdiction which doesn't have a public register. Places like the British Virgin Islands, Delaware in the US, or Panama. If that happens, there's no way to see what happens next in that financial chain. It's a brick wall. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an incredibly frustrating system, the offshore uh tax system just because it's you track stuff back for years and and you can't get past a certain point and you know you have that all the way around the world and you know we know that there are people who are using these companies for really really dodgy stuff so the panama paper documents gave an unprecedented opportunity to keep going down those trails allowing holly and hundreds of others to continue joining the dots and following the money but let's not forget journalists can be competitive desperate to break stories, and above all else, avoid getting scooped. So while Holly is squirrelling away in an office in London, and Bastian continues to talk to the mysterious source over in Munich, in Washington DC, Will Fitzgibbon is helping bring more journalists into the fold, and holding his breath. This kind of work involves so much faith and trust in other journalists. Every time that we made available the Panama Papers documents to a new journalist, some of whom we've never met in person. You know, I'd spend the night wondering whether or not if I woke up in the morning, the Panama Papers would have been published by some kind of online news outlet in God knows where back of beyond. So there's a lot of faith that we put in every journalist, but we also do make great efforts to explain to journalists and Everyone, I think, is increasingly getting the message to explain to them that working together will benefit not only the whole project, but also you individually. Because even if you could get one front page story out of a Panama Papers document in your own hometown on any given particular day, you can amplify that by 80 in terms of 80 news partners around the world who might be interested in also relaying that same investigation on the same day. So it took trust. A lot of trust, from the ICIJ, but also from all the journalists in the network trusting each other. And over time, a kind of camaraderie grew. Which was strange, 
given the fact most of them would never meet in person. No, it was quite funny. And actually, uh, halfway through, there was this investigative journalism conference in Norway, I seem to remember, which I went to. And because I'd been communicating with these people over the IHUB, I knew their names, but not their faces. So I'd sort of, some of them, and you'd be like, oh, 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 hi. And then, of course, because you were in the middle of this conference, you couldn't just be like, oh, my God, you know. So it was quite weird, this sort of secret handshake thing that was going on. But, yeah. (laughs) And at this stage, they didn't even know what to call the project. They'd been using the codename Prometheus, a Greek god who stole fire from Mount Olympus to give it to humankind. Not a bad analogy for the biggest leak of all time, but not a name for publication. Well, actually, it's quite funny because there was quite a lot of discussion about whether what we should call it, and Panama Papers sort of came up quite late on the day, and it... it to be absolutely honest, there was a fair amount of discussion within the entire group across the ICIJ, uh, all the people working with them, just because it wasn't really stuff about Panama and it wasn't really paper. So it was, on two different counts, it didn't make any sense. Um, but at the same time, clearly Mossack were based in Panama and they, they were very central. I mean, it was Panama was central. So that's how that happened. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. They had a name. And journalists all over the world were soon hitting on amazing revelations. Holly was storming ahead too. There was a whole list of famous names she found in the data. Jackie Chan, Pedro Almodovar, Stanley Kubrick. And among them were former MPs or members of the House of Lords. And another household name from the world of politics. The message to business should be, if we are cutting this rate of tax down to a good low level you should be paying that rate of tax rather than seeking uh, ever more aggressive ways to avoid it. David Cameron, the then Prime Minister of the UK, 
was there in the data. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was one of those ones that we sort of looked at for ages and it was, it was quite complex because it was, it was relating to his father and, you know, we did obviously know that his father was dead. So it was, we were very sensitive to that, but it was also quite clear, you know, David Cameron had spoken for a long time about his determination to close tax loopholes and, and so on and so forth. And actually, you know, a lot of loopholes had stayed open during his premiership. So we, we did decide we had to do it. Cameron's name was in the Panama Papers, attached to a company called Blairmore, a company that was run by his now-deceased father. The thing about Blairmore is that it was quite... So it was set up It was set up in, uh, in Panama, but actually operated out of the Bahamas. Um, and I think, so when we first went to them, I don't think they actually knew exactly what Blairmore had been doing. Uh, you know, you went to Downing Street, we gave them plenty of time to warn them that we were writing about it. And I think I think part of their concerns, they just didn't know what we knew because that was also a loss in the history of time. Holly spent days digging through the data, meticulously piecing all of the information on Blairmore together. She checked public accounts to try and match up things where she could and did a deep dive of research into David Cameron and his family. And she went back and pulled out loads of instances where Cameron had spoken about tax avoidance in the past. There was nothing in his public record linking him to Blairmore, this company. So was it right? Holly had to put the allegations to Downing Street to get their reaction. And at first it was curt. This is private business, they said, and wouldn't say any more. But we'll get back to their response later. After much discussion, the word finally came down from on high that it would be April for publication. The journalists had all the data ready, the financial accounts had been linked up, and the background research was done. But then they needed to put the stories to the people they would name. And for the TV journalists, they needed to get their interviews on camera. But how do you do that without breaking your embargo? or giving the game away to the outside world. We had to be very careful that we didn't start drawing attention to what we were doing. You had like you had all these TV production companies that were working on, on different programmes around the world, and then we had to be like, don't all go and start filming Mossack Fonseca from outside in Panama City, because that will just really confuse people. Um, but, you know, we had, at the same time, there was a sort of... We did have to go to some people early. There was a particularly hairy moment when a journalist went to interview the then Prime Minister of Iceland. On camera, they questioned him about his wife's links to an offshore company. The politician blanched, stuttered, and then stormed out of the room. Soon after, a rambling message appeared on his wife's Facebook page, excusing the connection to this offshore company. The journalists all held their breath. Would the public notice and work out what was going on? They weren't allowed to break the story yet. And then there was the Kremlin, when reporters approached official Russian government sources for comment on their finding, Putin's PR machine swung into action. So when the spokesman of the Russian president came out a few days before Panama Papers saying that there had been scurrilous accusations or questions relating to Vladimir Putin and offshore wealth of people known to him, I think some jitters went up. Add to that pressure from journalists from all over the world, desperate to link what they'd found in the Panama Papers to other news stories that were breaking in their countries. Imagine covering a national government election, knowing you had dynamite proof of possible tax evasion of a candidate just sitting on your computer back in the office. But no, 
the ICIJ battled to keep the clamouring journalists in check. It's kind of like that scene in Braveheart where Mel Gibson tells his soldiers, hold, 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 right until the last minute with their spears before the Brits run into them. It's kind of like that. And finally, finally, they were nearing the publication date. Then the scramble was on to get right of replies for everyone they were going to name. It was absurdly stressful. ICRJ both publishes its own stories, which meant that we were still receiving aggressive, detailed legal letters from the subjects of our reporting right up to the moment of publication. So it was certainly a never-ending stress fest right until the very end. I slept in the office uh, the night before publication. With responses in and stories written, soon it came to the assigned day of publication. It had been months in the making, more than a year since Bastion got that first message from the source. The clock was ticking down. Five hours to go. Four hours. One. And then... And somebody screamed, Hey, Edward Snowden just tweeted the Panama Papers. And we were like, what? And looked at his Twitter and saw that he tweeted about the biggest leak in the history of journalism and that it had to do with corruption or something like that. And it was way before we went we went online. So <laughs> a little nervous how he would know about this. Preparing for the biggest web traffic they'd ever experienced, the Süddeutsche Zeitung team had tested their first article by putting it up, but on a hidden page from Google searches. It should have passed under the radar. But they said it's not to be found through Google, so we don't know yet how Edward Snowden found our Panama Papers page. Snowden leaked the leak. That was kind of crazy, yeah. Snowden leaked the leak. So the original sources of the Panama Papers kind of scooped themselves. But it was no real problem. Just half an hour or so after that tweet from Snowden, the official embargo was lifted, and across the world, journalists hit publish. Yeah, it was quite nerve-wracking. I mean, it was just, you come in and you're all, you know, all the editors are there and Kath Vine is there, of course. Um, and, you know, you're sort of sitting there and then there's a sudden point when you, you press the button and all the screens around you change up with the story. And it's fantastic. You know, it's really great when that happens. It, I'm not, you know, it's just an exciting moment for everybody at The Guardian because it was work we were really proud of, that we worked on for a long time. And, and then you sort of watch the reaction and in this case it was as simple as kind of like Twitter lighting up and just being like whoa what is this? No matter how stressful everything is before publication and no matter how stressful things get pretty quickly after publication there are a few moments there where we all sat back logged into ICIJ's Twitter account on the biggest screen we could find and just started following the Panama Papers hashtag. In the time period of Maybe one and a half hour, I spoke to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> That's not a normal day in Germany. <laughs> the story made headlines all over the world. In the UK, Holly's story about David Cameron's share in Blairmore took off. And over the next week, the story continued to develop. I don't quite know what happened in Downing Street that week. Like, it got very chaotic. They, they kind of, they had sort of five days in a row when they 
very much changed their story. And well, they didn't change their story, but they allowed the story to evolve. And they, that kind of made it run bigger and bigger and bigger over the course of the week. And, you know, that at first they started being like, this is a private matter. We're not going to be talking about it. And then people were like, well, that's not really going to cut it because, you know, this is, this is something about the prime minister and his own money. And, you know, Mr. Speaker, there have been some deeply hurtful and profoundly untrue allegations made against my father. And I want to, if the House will let me, put the record straight. This investment fund was set up overseas in the first place because it was going to be trading predominantly in dollar securities. This should be a country that believes in aspiration and wealth creation. So we should should defend the right of every British citizen to make money lawfully. I'm sure, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister will join me in welcoming the outstanding journalism that has gone into exposing the scandal of destructive global tax avoidance revealed by the Panama Papers. What they have driven home, Mr Speaker, is what many people have increasingly felt. There is now one rule for the super-rich and another for the rest. And it was quite interesting because after... After David Cameron left, I think, Craig Oliver, his his uh, official spokesman at the time, Craig Oliver wrote a book saying that he'd actually been concerned that week that it might take Cameron out altogether, uh, which, you know, we were sort of, we knew it was going to be a big story, but it was just quite interesting the way they handled it. They they did not get, they kept on sort of adding to the story, which gave it more. And then, and it got to the end of the week, and then suddenly David Cameron sort of announced that he'd owned shares in Blairmore himself, along with his wife. Well, it's not been a great week. <laughs> I, I know that I should have handled this better. I could have handled this better. I know there are lessons to learn, and I will learn them. By the end of the week, the Prime Minister had admitted it had been a difficult few days. And he then said he had held the shares together with his wife, Samantha, from 1997, and during his time as leader of the opposition. He said they were sold in January 2010, for a profit of £19,000. The Panama Papers stories would flow for days, then weeks, and then months. It was the single largest leak of data in journalism history. Journalists around the world had dug into the data and found shell corporations were being used for illegal purposes, including fraud, tax evasion, and evading international sanctions. Mossack Fonseca replied, saying the coverage had misrepresented their work. In its statement, the company asserts that it conducts due diligence on potential clients, routinely denying services to those who are compromised, and routinely resigns from client engagements when ongoing due diligence and or updates to sanction lists reveal problems. But the reporting had exposed offshore companies linked to more than 140 politicians in more than 50 countries including 14 current or former world leaders. It prompted police raids, arrests and resignations of high-profile figures, including that Prime Minister from Iceland. In 2017, a year and one week after the first story was published, the team behind the Panama Papers were awarded a Pulitzer Prize. For Holly, it felt like a lifetime since she'd first nodded her way through that conversation with her colleague about some obscure law firm she'd never heard of. I certainly didn't realise it was going to be eight months of my life. Um, And it was also just fascinating. You know, I'm a geek and I'm interested in tax, so the idea that I could spend months of my life going through literally how one of these big firms worked was amazing. It was brilliant. 
I guess after those eight months of, you know, staring at the screen, being in this little room upstairs secretly squirreled away, how did it feel coming back to the newsroom and, and trying to find another story? That was fun. I'm trying to think what I worked on next. I can't remember. Did you get any time off in between? I did, yes. I, I went away on holiday for a couple of weeks, which was really nice. <laughs> I just did absolutely nothing. <laughs> did you go to Panama? No, sadly. I've never been to Panama. I'm quite intrigued by Panama. That's all for this episode. Thanks to Bastian Obermeyer, Holly Watt and Will Fitzgibbon. There's links to some of their stories in the show notes. This has been The Tip-Off, hosted and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan. Our theme music is by Dice Muse, and other music in this episode by James Spacek. There's just one more episode in this first season of The Tip-Off, but there's still time to leave us a review on iTunes. You can tweet at Tip-Off Podcast or find us on Facebook, and there's still time to spread the word to friends. And stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.